Hi, this is David Flower, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. It is my pleasure to introduce you to our speaker for Mission Sunday 2021. Chris Freak currently serves as a support coordinator with BICUS World Missions. He has over 17 years of pastoral ministry experience and holds a master's degree in New Testament studies as well as a master's degree in world Christianity, both from Evangelical Seminary. He holds a D-Men in missional leadership from Missio Seminary. Chris is the author of A New Look at Hospitality as a Key to Missions. I like that. Which is volume eight in the Areopagus Critical Christian Issues series. Chris lives just south of Lancaster, PA with his wife of 20 years, Stacy, who's with us here this morning. And they have two daughters, Emma and Anna. Chris likes to stay active through running and exercising. He enjoys a good cup of coffee with hazelnut creamer. He also enjoys baseball and rooting for both Cleveland and Baltimore, so you may need to forgive him before he comes up here, depending on who you are. Chris, we welcome you. Come and share what God has laid on your heart. Would you welcome Chris? Well, good morning, sisters and brothers. It is truly a privilege and an honor to be sharing here with all of you at Grantham Church. Um, Like David said, Jonathan should be here, so I'm going to do his uh, little portion, uh, Missions Update uh, 2021, prior to getting into our, our message today. And so God has done some exciting things in World Missions in 2021. And before I get into the sermon, as I said, I want to give you four highlights of what he has done. And so first, I want to share about Donald and Karen Vundla, who, um, how many of you are retired? Okay, Donald and Karen are retired also, but they recently just deployed to serve in Africa. Southern Africa, to be specific. They deployed this year as regional coordinators, uh, serving the church in Zimbabwe, Zambia, Malawi, and Mozambique. Donald has significant training and experience in both theology and administration, and Karen brings over 30 years of professional nursing experience. They both have prior experience in Southern Africa, and they're already making deep connections with the Brethren in Christ Church leaders across the region. Within the last few weeks, they've been able to travel into Mozambique, and this week they will be spending some time with the church leaders in Malawi. We have some exciting things happening in Dearborn, Michigan. The picture on the screen 
is of the largest mosque in the United States, and it's located in Dearborn. Dearborn, Michigan has one of the highest populations of Arab Muslims outside of the Middle East. And we currently have one uh, global worker sent to serve as what we call a kingdom professional in the area of Dearborn, Michigan. And uh, this person, I won't mention her name, but um, she actually serves as a nurse in a local clinic and she also is in the, involved in teaching nursing classes in the, the Dearborn and Detroit area. She specifically lives in an Arab Muslim neighborhood and is just seeking to be a good neighbor and build relationships. And God is doing some amazing things through her living in, and working as a kingdom professional in Dearborn, Michigan. Uh, this, this past August, we had the opportunity of sending a team of 11 to uh, spend some time in Dearborn. And as we were there, we were able to connect with some uh, Syrian, re a ministry that was doing outreach to Syrian refugee children, doing a specifically English and, and math camp. And we were um, coming up and, and encountering stories of children who uh, had fled Syria. I remember one girl in particular who, uh, she was high school aged, but uh, she had never been in school because of the war situation in Syria. And so this is just a, a small glimpse of, of the, the opportunity and need really in our own backyard. It's only about an eight or nine hour drive from here. And so God's doing some really exciting things in, in Dearborn, Michigan. We also have a family can't mention their name as well due to the, the sensitive environment that they're in. But we have a family in the Middle East that devotes more than 50% of their ministry to Syrian refugees that live in their country of service. And they are building relationships in multiple ways, supporting these families through compassion ministry, sharing gospel truth, and advocating for the protection of children. And that's what's on the screen. It's Altaj, which is a ministry that they've started. And I don't know if anybody here can read Arabic, but apparently the, the crown itself is uh, written in Arabic letters that spell Altaj, which means the crown. And it's a, a ministry specifically related to uh, child protection issues among the, the refugee community in the nation in which they are serving. And so God's doing some exciting things there. And then even more recently, in October, we were able to help facilitate a gathering of developing church leaders. And this gathering, which was around the uh, core course, as you can see, dealing with the theology of salvation, but there were participants from China, South Korea, and even a representative from the Brethren in Christ Church in Japan as well as several Americans coming together to take this core course held at Gateway Karis Church in Southern California. And the participants went away encouraged and hungry for more. And we're excited to explore other opportunities to provide leadership training in the form of core courses and perhaps through some other means uh, in, in some other countries, in some other contexts. 
to better meet the needs of our Asian brothers and sisters and to equip them to build the church. And so these are just some small snapshots of what God has been doing around the globe through world missions in 2021. And now I want to transition to, well, first I want to say thank you. Thank you for your faithful support through supporting missionaries, through supporting the Compassion Fund, through giving to the Common Fund. Uh, It's always a privilege and an honor to share with brothers and sisters who have a heart for God's passion to reach the nations. And so I was given this uh, topic of um, compassion and mission in the midst of COVID-19. And as I thought and prayed about this topic and in light of our, our current cultural situation, I landed on this topic of the mission of interruption. And we're going to be, in a little bit, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 11 and Luke chapter 10 to support what I want to share this morning, but we'll get there in a few moments. But I would like to, to open up with prayer first before I preach. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for another opportunity to gather together with brothers and sisters of like heart and like mind to encourage and equip one another, but even more so to point one another towards you, to fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so, Father, we thank you for your presence with us here today. We thank you for how you've already been speaking to us. And we pray and trust that you will continue to speak to us, mold us, form us, shape us as we worship you. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Divisions, factions, choosing sides, vaccinated, unvaccinated, Republican, Democrat, masked, unmasked. We could go on and on. But I would suggest that none of this is new. It's a pattern that merely repeats itself over the centuries. And the issues and locations may change, but I believe the same principle remains. And the church has not been immune. Just as a quick reference, we have Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. After he gives his introductory greeting and his thanksgiving, He goes into his letter and says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Recently, just... A couple weeks ago, on October 24th, there was an article in The Atlantic, and it was titled, The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart, and it was written by Peter Wehner, and I think uh, your pastor David even shared it on social media along with with many other people. It's an article that really spoke to many people, and it it went viral in, in a sense. 
And for me, as I read the article, it resonated in many ways, but this was one of my, this was one of the parts of the article that really spoke to me. The author writes, the root of the discord that the church is experiencing lies in the fact that many Christians have embraced the worst aspects of our culture and our politics. When the Christian faith is politicized, churches become repositories not of grace but of grievances, places where tribal identities are reinforced, where fears are nurtured, and where aggression and nastiness are sacralized. The result is not only wounding the nation, it's having a devastating impact on the Christian faith. To quote another biblical author, there's nothing new under the sun. We could look at other moments in in recent church history. We could go back and spend time unpacking all of church history, but just as a case in point, in the last hundred years, we have the example of the confessing church. If you're not familiar with the confessing church, this the, the context was Germany around 1933 and the rise of Hitler and the Third Reich and Nazism. Out of around 18,000 pastors in Germany at that time, approximately 3,000 agreed to uh, um, hold to a kingdom understanding of the church rather than a Nazi-based understanding of the church. And of those 3,000, 700 were arrested. We may know some names like Karl Barth. Karl Barth was part of the Confessing Church, and um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer might be the most well-known member of the Confessing Church, who we know that towards the end of World War II uh, was martyred for his... Uh, um, witness and his prophetic ministry at that time. Another example, and I'll reference this a few times throughout the message today, would be the Rwandan genocide, which took place in Rwanda in in the spring of 1994. What happened there was violence broke out between two tribes, between the Hutus and the Tutsis, and it was specifically related to the Hutus against the Tutsis, which led to around 800,000 deaths. And what's striking about this is the intimacy of this event, because there are accounts of even the day before this began, even the day before, Hutus and Tutsis were gathered in worship spaces together alongside of one another. Speaking to this, Emmanuel Kantongale, in his book, A Mirror to the Church, says this, in the face of these different levels of betrayal, we begin to see the extent to which the blood of tribalism in its many forms run deeper, runs deeper than the waters of baptism. I'll just pause there for a second and let that sink in. That is what the Rwanda genocide exposes and puts before us as a mirror. Now, I find it interesting that we went back to the quote from the Atlantic article by Peter Wenner, um, he mentions tribal identities being reinforced, being reinforced. And here, writing in 2008, reflecting on the situation in Rwanda, Emmanuel Katongale shares that 
Tribalism in its many forms runs deeper than the waters of baptism. It's into this that I want to talk about what I would say is the hopeful power of interruptions. And I want to just briefly take a moment and define, define what I mean as interruption. According to Merriam-Webster, an interruption is a stoppage or a hindering of an activity for a time. And I believe that in this kind of same vein, we as a church are called to be those that interrupt this world's narratives through our witness to Christ and his kingdom. If it's indeed true what Emmanuel Contongoli says, that uh, rather than the waters of baptism going deeper than our tribal identities and our tribal identities being reinforced, like Peter Wenner writes, and as uh, um, the confessing church experienced back during World War II, then I would point that we are still dealing with the same theme, and it's important for us to remember that God is calling us as his missional children to speak and to live in the hopeful power of this interruption. Quoting Emmanuel Katongale again, he defines mission as this. He says, our mission is to be a new community that bears witness to the fact that in Christ there is a new identity. A new identity. Now, we could debate whether or not we agree with Katongale's definition of the church's mission, but his definition, at least to me, reminds us of what the Apostle Paul wrote to the, the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. God, who is the missionary God, has sent a powerful and hopeful interruption into the created world through his Son and our Savior Jesus Christ. Through the cross and the empty tomb, he interrupted everything. And according to Paul's words here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this interruption in Christ brought about our reconciliation with God, but also with one another, that vertical and horizontal dimension. And it has been given to us then to go out into the world as interruptions who share this message with everyone. This is our identity. We are reconciled reconcilers for Christ's sake. This makes us interrupters to the ways of this world, and therefore the mission of the church is the mission of interruption to the way things are currently in this world. And I want to touch today on at least two ways that I think Scripture bears this out for us. And the first is this. The church interrupts the kingdoms of this world through its collective prophetic voice. Again, a, another quote from Emmanuel Katongale. Oh, sorry, I don't have that one on the screen. 
Manuel Contungale says, whether we are in Rwanda or in the United States, the reality that we have to face is that we do not have many churches that are able to say no. When genocide is happening, we do not know how to resist. When conspicuous consumption is the norm, we are not very good at living an alternative. But the witness of the biblical story is that God's people are always invited to say no to the idols of their age and rise up by the power of the Spirit as a holy interruption. This is the way of the prophetic nature of the church. And this way has been paved for us by Christ Jesus himself and the prophets who went before him. I think of prophets like Jeremiah who spoke truth to power when nobody else was willing to do so. I think of prophets like Micaiah who was prophesying against King Ahab when all the other prophets prophets around were saying only good and positive things about the king at that time. We are called collectively to continue in this long line of God's kingdom prophets, adopting a posture that interrupts the ways of this world, which leads us to the passage in Revelation, Revelation chapter 11, because I believe that this passage points us to that reality. Reading verses 1 through 12, I'm reading from the NIV. I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. And this is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, while their enemies looked on. Now, this passage, I believe, is one that's often been uh, um, abused over the years. And so, right, here I am. I'm going to tell you what it really means, right? So... Um, I believe this passage actually speaks to that reality of the collective prophetic witness of God's church, which is missional at its core. And let me try to break it down a little bit. As I said, Revelation 11 is symbolic of the prophetic and missional witness of the church. For example, in this passage, we encounter two witnesses. On the popular level, the church has been looking for two specific people, 
But I take this to be a, a, a call for the entire universal church. Why two witnesses? Because we know from both the Old Testament and the New Testament that godly witnesses built on two or more. And we also know that in the, in the Gospels, Jesus sends the disciples out two by two. Secondly, in this passage, there's a reference to two olive trees. I believe this takes us back to Zechariah chapter 4, where we're told that it's not by power and it's not by might that God will accomplish what he desires in this world, but it's through the empowering presence of his Holy Spirit. So, if the two witnesses are referring to the church universal and the two olive trees are speaking into that, this is not a picture of just two specific people. It's a call or at least a reminder for the prophetic global witness of God's spirit-empowered church. Next, we're told that these churches are referred to as lampstands. I've been taught, I don't know about you, but I've been taught that the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. And we know from Revelation chapter 1 verse 20 that Jesus himself tells us what the lampstands represent. He says the lampstands represent the churches, which further points us to this universal prophetic witness and ministry of the church. And we're told that they are to prophesy. And we're told that there's fire coming from their mouths. This is symbolic language. He's not saying that they're like fire-breathing dragons. They're not literally like flamethrowers coming from their mouths. It is a word picture that points to what Craig Keener tells us is the church fulfilling the standard Christian mission of testifying to Christ. Our missional purpose is to point the world to Jesus and his kingdom. That's what I believe these prophets are doing. This is, according to Revelation chapter 11, a picture of what the mission of the church is to be. And not only does the church prophetically and missionally point the world to Christ, but this passage, I believe, also reminds us that we imitate Christ not only in life, but also in death. Because we're told in verse 7 that the church will be attacked, overpowered, and killed. And this is, this is a theme that we find throughout the chapters of the book of Revelation. The church in the book of Revelation is a suffering church. It's a church on the margins, but yet it's in the midst of this suffering that we are imitating Jesus in himself. And just as our Lord was resurrected, we have the hope of resurrection. There's the reference in verse 11 to after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered back into them and they were resurrected. We too will experience the bodily resurrection. And likewise, just as Acts 1.9 tells us that Jesus went up to heaven in a cloud where he was seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's where we will be seated, but the same language is used here in verse 12. They went up to heaven in a cloud, just like Jesus in Acts 1.9. So friends, part of the mission of Christ's church is to boldly proclaim Christ in this world while not fearing death, because we worship the one who has victory over 
death. Craig Keener, in his commentary on Revelation, says this, the portrait reinforces John's contrast between the church and the world system. The latter holds power to kill God's witnesses, but the witnesses will triumph nevertheless, even through their sacrifice. And just to give us an on-the-ground example, I want to share a story that is in a book called Dissident Discipleship, written by, uh, I believe he's Mennonite author David Augsburger. He shares a story that goes like this. In the early 1990s, gang violence erupted in Boyle Heights, a section of East Los Angeles. Eight gangs were in conflict in the parish around the Dolores Mission Catholic Church. Killings and injuries happened daily. A group of women who met for prayer read together the story of Jesus walking on the water in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Then one of the mothers, electrified by the text, began to identify the parallels between the Jesus story and her own. The gang warfare in Boyle Heights was the storm on the Sea of Galilee. The people hiding behind the locked doors were the disciples huddled in the storm. The crackle of gunfire was the lightning. In both cases, death was imminent. Then Jesus appeared, and they hoped for a magical rescue. Instead, he said, get out of the boat. Walk on the water. Enter the violence. We will calm the storm together. That night, 70 women began a procession from one barrio to another. They brought food, guitars, and love. As they ate chips and salsa and drank Cokes with the gang members, they began to sing old songs, and I'm probably going to mispronounce these, I apologize, uh, the old songs of Jalisco, Chiapas, and Michoacan. The gang members were disoriented, baffled. The war zones were silent. Each night, the mothers walked by non-violently intruding and intervening. Sounds like interruption, doesn't it? They broke the rules of war. The old script of retaliation and escalating violence was challenged and changed. It is no accident that the women christened their nighttime journeys as love walks. As their relationships between the women and the gang members grew and the, kids from, uh, uh, they, and the kids told their stories to the women, anguish over the lack of jobs and anger at police brutality, rage over the hopelessness of poverty, together they developed uh, a tortilla factory, a bakery, a child care center, a job training program, a class on conflict resolution techniques, a school for further learning, and a neighborhood group to monitor and report police misbehavior, and more. And it began with the challenges from Jesus, get out of the boat and walk on the water. Prophetic mission of interruption from 70 women in a gang-infested area that needed hope. They needed the kingdom. The communal mission 
of the church together. So that's kind of the big picture. But now I also want to bring it down to us individually because just as we as a corporate body are called to interrupt the kingdoms of this world, the church interrupts the kingdoms of this world through the kingdom-focused living of disciples that includes families. It includes us as individuals wherever we go, whatever the Lord calls us to do. And so sometimes when we talk about the mission of God, we can get stuck in lofty discussions on methods and strategies and so forth. And this is why I believe it's vital for us to remember that the mission of interruption is lived out on the ground in real life as we hear from God. And as we hear, we must engage, especially with people. Jesus gives us a powerful example of what a kingdom-focused life looks like on the ground in the well-known parable in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, which we know as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I'm just going to read that parable again and point some things out to us about what this on-the-ground mission of interruption looks like for us. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Essentially, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus responding, is responding to this false notion that certain people are my neighbors, which means that there are other people who aren't my neighbors, or to use the language from the beginning of our message, this issue of tribalism. Republicans stick together, Democrats stick together, unvaxxed stick together, the vaxxed stick together, people of color stick together, whites stick together. We could go on and on. 
But Jesus is speaking directly into that situation and ours today. He deliberately, even shockingly, to his audience depicts the non-neighbor or the outsider as the compassionate hero of the story. The audience, hearing that the priest and the Levite are passing by, they might have been tempted to think something like, oh good, help is here now, help is on the way. The Levite or the the priest will certainly do something. But this thought only meets with disappointment as Jesus tells us that they merely passed by on the opposite side of the road, ignoring the wounded man in his distress. But it's the half-breed Samaritan, the outsider according to the Jewish way of thinking, the least likely person in the context of Jesus' day, that time that this parable was being told, is this godly example of compassion. This is a parable, as I said, that speaks directly into our cultural moment of our day. Perhaps if Jesus were telling this story today, he would use some of those things that I've already mentioned a moment ago. But when I look at this story, I'm often struck by the depth of action the Samaritan takes in this parable. His compassion, which the NIV translates as pity, his compassion is costly. And if we know anything about that word compassion, it means to suffer with, to suffer with. So to engage in compassion is to suffer with, and that's what the Samaritan does. We see in this passage that he sees the wounded man, And he has compassion on him, which we know is opposite, contrary to what the priest and the Levite in their response. And he goes to him and bandages his wounds. He cleanses the wounds with oil and wine. Jesus tells us that he puts the man on his own donkey. He takes him to an inn where he continues to take care of the man overnight. And he gives two days wages to provide further care. Then he makes plans to return, and then he plans ahead for further financial needs that he may incur. That's a lot. That's a lot, plain and simple. And I believe that Revelation 10, or excuse me, Revelation 11 and John 10, or yeah, Luke 10, point us to a reality. And that reality is that following Jesus on mission for his kingdom is costly. Now let's look at the Samaritan a little bit longer here. As we said, his engagement cost him. It cost him his time. I mean, think about it. Where where was he going? We're not told. Jesus doesn't tell us, but he was going somewhere. But he was willing to interrupt wherever he was going to help this man with the resources he had with him. And what were those resources? He used his own oil and wine to tend to the wounds. He used, whether it was his own clothing or maybe some extra cloth somewhere he had, maybe saddled on the donkey, but he used some kind of cloth to bandage the wounds of this man. And if this man had wounds that needed bandaging, we can assume that that meant he literally got his hands dirty bloody. 
which means he probably got blood and dirt on his own clothing. That means he, he opened the back seat and put him, in his, uh, um, put him in the back of his Honda Accord, which means he probably got blood in the back of his Honda. In his case, he had a donkey. He put the man on his own donkey. That would have meant that he either had to choose to walk or he had to choose to get on the donkey also and hold the rein and also then maybe perhaps hold the man from behind to keep him from falling. And then we're told that he stayed overnight at the inn with the man to care for him. Again, going back to that issue of time, you know, did he, did he have a wife at home wondering where he was for dinner? Did he have plans with his kids that evening? It's not like he could just pull out the cell phone and call. He was willing to interrupt his own plans to be a hopeful interruption for this man. I was reading a commentary on this by Daryl Bach, and Daryl Bach says, here's a ministry that underwrites the victim's recovery from start to finish. I love that. From start to finish. How much do you, what's two days wages for you? This is what compassionate mission and ministry does. It is with people from start to finish. In our culture, however, we can be guided, I think, sometimes by a desire to see fruit. We want to see the fruit. We want to always see the results. But I think the reality is that as we walk in obedience and compassion, we may never see all of the fruit that we desire to see. And we need to be okay with that. Do you ever um, enjoy the credits, closing credits at the end of a movie? How many people stick around for those? A couple people. The only time I do is if I'm watching one of the Marvel movies because you know there's going to be, yeah, there's going to be something at the end, a little teaser of kind of what to expect in the future. But I confess when the movie's over, I'm up and out of there. What's a key grip anyway? Or, Or a dolly grip? I have no idea. But if you watch in the credits, like, They're in there, and there's a name. I don't know what they are, but apparently those are needed roles in order to help that movie to come to fruition. Sometimes we need to be okay with realizing that my name will be in the closing credits somehow, but people will probably never stick around to see it. We need to be okay with that. Because as we said before, God often works in ways that that we don't fully see or understand. And I I think of a a lecture, and I'll refer to this again at the end, but a lecture that was given by a missiologist named uh, Jonathan Bonk. And in this lecture, he was describing how God works through his kingdom means, not through the world's means. And, And he just kind of gave this example of this uh, um, eccentric rich person in Britain in the 1800s. His name was Robert Arthington. And he was the kind of guy, like, if you went up to his door and knocked on his door, um, he wouldn't even answer it. 
Like he like just lived in his house, sequestered alone, but he, this guy, at the same time, he loved Jesus and he loved mission and he had lots of money and he gave a large portion of his wealth to support mission work all over the globe at that time. And one of the places where his support went was an area in Northeast India called the Mitsuram area. And the, the people of the Mitsuram area of Northeast India developed a strong passion to spread the gospel. And then Jonathan Bonk tells us about a, a man and a woman in the early 1900s named John and Edith Hayward, who through hospitality, they welcomed one student from India, and his name was Bhakt Singh. And John and Edith Hayward introduced Bak Singh to Christianity. Bak Singh was an engineering student who eventually went through the hospitality of John and Edith Hayward, would come to Christ and become a church planter, ultimately seeing 500 congregations planted in India, 200 in Pakistan, as well as some in Europe and North America. And where do you think Bak Singh um, had his roots? Mitzuram. Mitzuram. See how all of these different things were interconnected for the sake of God's mission and his kingdom? They probably never even knew about each other, but God did. And God used it for the sake of his kingdom. When we obey the Lord with compassion and engage in his mission, we have no idea what the Lord will do or how he will do it. And again, we need to learn to be okay with that and walk in faithful obedience. In fact, we find that the Lord often doesn't seem to work through our corporate and strategic means that we may often try to employ. What would this look like for Grantham Church? What would this look like for other Brethren in Christ churches to embrace this way of compassionate mission and ministry of interruption during this current cultural moment? And again, and as is on the screen, when we look at both Revelation 10 and Luke, or excuse me, Revelation 11 and Luke 10, I believe they point us to a similar principle, and that is following Jesus on mission for his kingdom is costly. When we look at Revelation 11, we see that prophetically speaking God's truth and interrupting the powers and kingdoms of this world has a cost. And the cost we see there could be martyrdom. It's at least suffering. Living a life of interruption through missional compassion like we see in the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. Living that life of missional compassion to others has a cost. It will cost us at least our resources, but in our current cultural situation, it will probably also cost us our reputation. You know, one, one time I was told... This one's for free. One time I was told by a, a parishioner, you know, you're the most liberal conservative I ever met. And I said, thank you. I think that's how to be. We don't fit into any boxes. We fit into the, the Jesus way. And it doesn't fit comfortably into the ways of this world. Again, coming back to missiologist Jonathan Bonk, he ends his lecture with these words, and this will begin to bring us to a close here this morning. He says, today, of course, it is Jesus rather than Caesar who is remembered. 
and who continues to wield influence. For us North American Christians whose... uh, He says, for us North American Christians, whose material privilege exceeds that of 90% of this planet's inhabitants, it is important to remember that God has not changed his ways and continues to prefer astoundingly anti-intuitive ways in accomplishing his purposes. Christian mission in the 21st century will continue to be done by God's people in God's way since this is God's world. And God has always used ordinary individuals whose identification with Christ makes it possible for them to remain silent or sit still within contexts over which neither they nor their listeners have any control. And so as we continue to ponder the mission of interruption that God has called called us to, I think that as brethren in Christ, perhaps it would be helpful for us to look afresh at our brethren in Christ, specifically our Anabaptist history, especially looking to our core values. Uh, I I can't help but thinking about, as I was um, participating in viewing the the Cider Institute events this past Friday, talking about similar things. I know that that Harriet was a presenter there, and um, a a lot of those presentations, I think, tie into some of what I'm saying here today. And I think that timing is is of the spirit, perhaps. But I believe that, that our history, our core values, are powerful missional tools that we have to offer both the church and the world when we talk about such things as radical obedience to Jesus. What would that look like today in this cultural moment? When we talk about things like embracing peace and loving our enemies, What would that look like in this current cultural moment? When we talk about things like living simply in an age that is so inundated with consumerism, what would that look like today? How could these things be prophetic missional interruptions, not only within our local neighborhoods, but also across this wider world for the sake of Christ and his kingdom? When these are lived out both corporately and individually, they not only prophetically interrupt our current cultural situation, but these kingdom ways can have a profound witness and missional effect wherever God is working. Friends, let us show our neighbors what lives that are focused on living missionally for the sake of Christ and his kingdom look like. Let's be hopeful interruptions for the sake of Christ. And I would just end with one final illustration. And this is from the situation in in Rwanda. Another brave sister named Felicity. Sister Felicity was a member of the Auxiliaries of the Apostolate, a religious order of the Catholic Church in Rwanda. She was in charge of an orphanage in a remote town where she cared for children, most of whom were Tutsi. Now, just a reminder, the Tutsis were the ones that were being murdered and harmed. When news of the genocide spread to her region, Felicity hid over 30 Tutsis in her home and helped many more Tutsis flee over the border into the Congo. Sister Felicity's brother, 
who was an army colonel, asked her to stop protecting Tutsis, but she refused. When the authorities came to her region, they told Felicity that she would be spared because of her brother, but the others in her home would be killed. She answered that her household would have to stay together in life or in death. In an attempt to make her recant and save her own life, the authorities shot each person in front of Felicity, but she did not waver. When all of her companions had been slaughtered before her, Felicity asked to be killed. The militia leader told her to pray for him before he shot her. Emmanuel Contongoli goes on to say, Sister Felicity embodies the prophetic posture in the midst of a genocide that seemed natural to so many. She improvised a powerful interruption. Sheltering Tutsis and helping refugees across the border, she negotiated political boundaries while at the same time refusing to accept their assumptions. She knew the moment when the authorities came that it was time for her to stand with the brothers and sisters who had been marked for death. To the very end, she dared to question the line between her and the militia leader by praying that God would have mercy on him. In Rwanda, Sister Felicity has been given the title Hero of the Nation. Maybe hero is the best language nations have for such people. But in the church, we call Sister Felicity a saint and a martyr. Whereas heroes can be held up only as exceptional human beings, saints are remembered in the church because they are witnesses of God's faithfulness throughout every generation. God has not abandoned the church, even in the midst of genocide. God gives gifts to help us remember what the church is called to be. Sister Felicity offers a model for us to learn from. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the interruption that you have given to the world through your Son and our Savior, Jesus. And Father, just as I prayed at the beginning, I pray again, help us to fix our eyes on him. And empower us by your Holy Spirit that we, as we seek to be radical disciples of Jesus, following in his way, that we would embrace the calling of your church, your children, to live as missional interruptions here and now. We ask for wisdom and discernment to know what that means for our contexts, whether it's overseas or whether it's right here in Grantham or Harrisburg, or Dillsburg, or wherever you have placed us. Father, I pray that we would not fear death because we worship the one who has conquered death. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? We ask that you would place this mission, your mission, root it deep in our hearts and help us as those who call ourselves brethren in Christ to continue to live into the core values that we believe has something to say to this world right now. And our prayer is that you would be glorified and the name of Jesus would be lifted up locally and globally. 
And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Grantham.